Well, let's uh, read God's Word together uh, before we uplift uh, the offering. Uh, Just a short section, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, just a short section tonight uh, for us to reflect on before uh, we come to the Lord's table uh, to take communion together. And so we're in chapter 7 of Revelation, and we're going to read uh, from verses 1 through to 8. Revelation 7, 1 to 8. God's Word says this to us, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Thousand. And we're going to look at these verses for a short time this evening before we break bread together. Why don't we pray together? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we just pray that as we come to it again this evening, uh, that you would open our eyes uh, to see the truth that is contained within it, uh, that we might marvel afresh at your plans and your purposes and your sovereign power. Uh, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we come to these uh, verses uh, this evening, and in many ways, it's a short section of verses that speak again of something of the grace of God uh, at work. And we're just going to look at them before we take uh, communion together. Just to recap uh, where we're at, in chapter 6, we had seen uh, this vision of the Father holding this scroll with seven seals, and we come into chapter 6, and we see these seals being opened one by one, and we got up to the sixth seal being opened. And each seal that is opened unleashes a force on earth that is to come, Uh, and the first uh, speaks of the Antichrist coming. Uh, The second was a force of war that will come on the earth. Uh, The third was kind of global economic inflation and food shortages, followed by a time of plague and death. And then we saw this time of mass persecution of those who are turning to faith and uh, proclaiming the name of the Lord. And right at the end of that section, we saw the sixth seal being opened. And it spoke about the coming wrath of God. And we noted uh, these words last time, 
uh, near the end of the section. And here was the response of the people as this begins to happen. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So here are the people on earth, and they have been committing these terrible atrocities. And here comes the point where God responds, and He comes in His holy wrath. And we can understand something of this picture. Uh, I don't know what your childhood was like, but I remember there were times when perhaps I was kicking a ball around the garden with my friend, and the parents would come out and they would say, this is completely hypothetical, obviously, they would say, you know, stop kicking the ball around near the greenhouse. That was the instruction. 15, 20 minutes later, we're still playing football in the same spot when all of a sudden there is this smashing noise, not in a good way, as a couple of panes of glass in the greenhouse get kicked through by the football. Parents inside, we're outside, and at that point you can just hear your parents coming. You can't hear anything audibly, but you just sense this force coming of your parents and this impending wrath that is about to be unleashed, and all you want is the ground to swallow you up. That's the picture here. Here are these people who have been committing all these atrocities. They've been warned, and suddenly the moment comes when God responds. And they're calling out to the mountains to fall on them and the ground to swallow them up because they are so fearful of the wrath that is to come. And we think about that fear that we hold. Magnify that a thousandfold and you still don't have the fear that is instilled in these people. And so they've committed these atrocities. They have broken God's loving commands. And now is the time that they are to face judgment. And many of us as Christians sometimes struggle with this idea of God's wrath as an attribute. But actually in this context, holy wrath makes sense. Here is God's beautiful creation, this gift to us that has been destroyed by us. And this is God's means of response. And that question at the end, uh, poses the scene for chapter 7. It's almost as if we press the pause button for a moment. And the question that is asked is that in light of who we have seen God to be, and in light of this wrath and this judgment that is coming, who can stand? Who will survive this wrath? And we step into chapter 7, and we begin to get a glimpse to some of the answer. Chapter 7 provides for us a momentary pause before we step back into chapter 8. And in this section that we have read, we've been introduced to this group who are known as the 144,000. 
This section is very interesting because it answers an important theological question for us that many people ask. And that is, in the Old Testament, we have the Jewish people. And then you step into the New Testament, and you have the New Testament church. And the simple question is, what is God's relationship towards the Jewish people still today? That is the question. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. We step into the New Testament, and we have the church. And our tendency is to think that God has moved on from the Jewish people to the church. And the question we want to ask tonight is, what about the Jews? What does God feel about them? What is His relationship with them? Well, in order to answer that, uh, we need to read through the passage. And to begin with, we read these words. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on the tree. The section begins with the words, after this. And that's a phrase that we've seen before in Revelation. And it talks about the beginning of a new vision. And so, at the start of Revelation, we saw the vision of the seven churches. And then in Revelation, it says, after this, and we step into a new vision, and that is in the throne room of heaven, and of the Father, and of the scroll, and of the seven seals. And we began to see the six seals being opened. And then it says, after this again. And that shows that the focus has changed, and we're now into a new vision here in chapter 7. And imagine it's a bit like a movie. So you've got all these people on earth who have committed all these atrocities, and they're trying to hide themselves in fear, and they're calling the mountains to fall down on them, and there's this sense of God's wrath approaching. And suddenly the camera cuts away to a different scene. And now we're looking at a different group of people. We're looking at these 144,000. And they are people who are under the protection of God, as we will see. And the scene is set for this vision uh, by the introduction of four powerful angels. It says that each of them is standing at the four corners of the earth. What that means is that they are standing at the north, at the east, at the west, and at the south. They're standing at the four points where the wind blows from. And we're told that they're restraining the wind at this time. The wind wants to blow, but these angels' jobs is to momentarily restrain the wind from blowing. In the previous chapters, we've seen this coming wrath of God, and we know that it's going to be uh, accompanied by earthquakes and the shaking of the heavens and the earth. And now we can add in wind as well, that there will be these strong winds that are blowing. But for the moment, there is calm. And why is that? Well, we read these words. 
Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So here's John. First of all, he sees these four angels and they're holding back the wind, okay? Then he sees this other angel that is rising in the east. Now that makes sense because we know that John is on the island of Patmos, which was west of Israel. So as he looks to the east, he sees this powerful angel rising up, probably from around the nation of Israel. And the angel says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So this is a picture of judgment coming. The wind is a picture of judgment. That's the symbol of it. We know the destructive force of wind. We've had a storm this weekend. It's not been too bad. But we look around the world. We see these terrible hurricanes and tornadoes and other things that come. We know the destructive force of wind. And the wind here is symbolic of God's judgment that is coming. But this wind is not allowed to blow until a seal is put on the foreheads of a certain group of people. Now again, we know that this is a biblical theme of God's protection on certain people. We think back to Genesis 4.15. It said this, The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. A mark of God on someone in order to protect them. We read these interesting words in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men, the women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Difficult words in some ways, but this is speaking about a mark and a protection on a certain group of people. And perhaps the most famous example, not of a mark on a forehead, but a mark on a seal, is found in the Exodus story, and that of the Passover. And here is what we read in Exodus 12, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Are you with me? 
basically, in a sentence, God's judgment is coming, but there are certain people that he wants to protect in the midst of that judgment. And one of those groups is this 144,000. And in order for them to be protected amidst the judgment, before this wind blows that is symbolic of the judgment that is coming, these people have to be marked and sealed to say that they belong to God and therefore do not touch them. Now, this 144,000 are an interesting group. I speak to Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they pick up on this theme of 144,000. Uh, it was a great way to get you to sign up to be a Jehovah's Witness at the start because they said 144,000 are going to go to heaven and live in heaven. The rest of you will be on earth. Sign up to be a Jehovah's Witness and you'll be one of them. Lots of people signed up. They got to 144,000. Then they got to 144,001 and they're like, now we have to rewrite our theology a wee bit uh, because we're struggling. Who are these 144,000? Well, they are Jews who have been redeemed from the earth. In order to get a clearer picture, it's helpful for us to look at Revelation chapter 14 that also speaks about this group. It says this, Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among the mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Here we find something about the characteristic of these 144,000 Jews. And we're told that they are the first fruits, the first fruits of something new that God is doing. And we remember back to Old Testament times and times when people would plant fields by hand. And it would take you about a week to plant a field by hand. So you've got several fields you start in the first field on week one, and you plant it by hand, and it starts to grow. You move to the second field, and you begin planting it by hand, and it begins to grow. Move to the third field, begin planting it by hand, it begins to grow, so on, so forth. As you've planted in different orders, okay, so things begin to grow in different orders. And the Bible talks about the first fruits. That is that the field that you planted first should begin showing its fruit first, the first fruits. And if this crop here is doing well, then you've got hope that the other crops are going to do well also. That's why people offered the fruit of the first field to God. 
here are a group of Jews, and they are spoken of as being pure. They are spoken of as being blameless, and they have been set apart and redeemed from the earth for God. These are a group of Jews who are faithful, who are loyal, who are holy servants of God. And I believe that this 144,000 Jews are the beginnings of a new missionary force amongst the Jewish people and the other nations. You see, we look back to the Old Testament, and what was God's desire for the Jewish people? It was that they would be set apart for Him, and that they would be a light to the nations. And we see this story right throughout the Old Testament, and we see how in moments they started to get it, but then so often they failed God. And the Messiah comes and they fail to recognize him. And at that point, the church takes over. But God still has a plan for the Jewish people. God still loves the Jewish people. And his desire is that they would be that light to the nations that he desired that they would be. Romans 11, important passage. Read through it all in your own time. But it speaks about a day coming when the Jewish people will be jealous of the church. I wonder if that day will be at the rapture when they see the church going to be with Jesus and they fence, what have we missed? Maybe the church got it right. They've gone to go with the to be with the Messiah. I think that will lead to a mass turning of Jewish people to God. And it says this, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. What's the point of all this? It's a story of God's grace. That's what this evening's passage is about. It's a story of God's grace. God chose the Jewish people not because they were greatest, but because they were the least. And yet He chose them and He loved them and He established a covenant with them. 
And God never breaks his promises. That is the hope. God never breaks his promises. He's always faithful. And we do well to get our theology right in that just because the New Testament church is here, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten about the Jewish people. Praise God, he still loves them. And praise God, he still has a plan for them. And that plan is that they would come to know him and to love him and to put their faith in him. And tonight is about these 144,000, the first fruits of those who will come to faith from Israel, from among the Jews, those who are known by God, those who have the mark of Christ's name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Why? Because they belong to God. It's a story about the fact that even though sometimes life is complex and difficult, and we see that in God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament, that he never gives up, that he's faithful, that he loves them. And as we're thinking about this morning, about lavish grace, God pursues his people. He keeps his promises. He is faithful. And that should encourage our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. And then we'll break bread together after we've sung. Father God, we thank you that you persevere in your love. And we thank you that you are a faithful God who doesn't give up on his promises. And we thank you for the reminder tonight that you do not give up on your promises to the Jewish people. Because it reminds us that your character never changes. And just as you will be faithful to them and we rejoice in that, we're reminded that you're faithful also to us. And we're thankful that your grace extends to all who put their trust in you. We're thankful that even though we were once your enemies, those who persecuted you, just like the Jewish people did, at the time that Jesus came. But still your love is greater than that. And that what you did on the cross was a supreme act of love. And we think of your words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that is a level of love that we do not know. But we thank you that we are recipients of that grace. And as we have been recipients of that grace, we pray also for those who are Jews around our world today, those who know the richness of the Old Testament and yet do not know yet the richness of coming into relationship with you. 
And we ask that you would put a burden in our hearts to pray for them and to pray for their salvation. Lord, we thank you for your redeeming work shown to us on the cross. And we pray that as we come to break bread now, that that might just be a celebration of your love, of your forgiveness, of your redemption that is offered to each one of us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>